Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. Email feedback to Aaron at paleorunner.org. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you sustained energy throughout your workout. It gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates. To get 10% off, use the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening on the podcast app for iPhone or iPad, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Brian McKenzie. Brian is creator of CrossFit Endurance and is author of the book Power Speed Endurance, a skill-based approach to endurance training. Brian, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me back, Aaron. Pleasure. Yeah, Brian, it's been almost a year since you were on the show, and you're still one of the most popular downloads on Paleo Runner Podcast. That's and I think people strange. are really interested in your approach to endurance training because it's an alternative to the traditional approach, and things like marathons and ultramarathons just continue to get more popular. So give our listeners a little bit of a background of how you got interested in this alternative approach to distance training. Um. I, I think I, I my background I was a I was a competitive swimmer um, well for my age at the times um, and I, I swam more or less for 20 years got involved in some powerlifting out uh, after uh, high school um, actually towards the end of my high school career and then uh, I I ended up um, somehow getting coaxed into doing a uh, triathlon uh, as I was going to school and and, and became a trainer. And um, through that process, I inevitably got into endurance sports, endurance sports, and um, I, I I was mentored at the very same at the it, it, like I did one triathlon and uh, I was just a mess, and I had learned to run at a pose clinic and was just banged up, and so I started really applying this stuff, and then I saw just huge returns, and I ended up I've I've been mentored more or less by Dr. Nicholas Romanoff for. A better part of a decade, more than a decade, and uh, his whole thought process. He comes from a Russian background, and most lifting communities, whether it be weightlifting or powerlifting, are always looking towards the Russians for a lot of things. So my background it was uh, more or less endurance fixated, but with a Russian twist. Mm. And um, Romanov coaches a lot like I do. Um, well, <laughs> we, we we technically coach very similar within the movement standards, but also within how we would uh, program for endurance athletes. Needless to say, he introduced me more or less to a lower volume, higher skill-based training paradigm. Um, and with that, we not only did I, but the more important part here, and, and, and this is the uh, – kind of the, the real important part is that the athletes we were coaching, I was coaching, were having tremendous success with this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it isn't necessarily a lower volume program, um, and I, ha- I have another book coming out in um, probably May, I think at this point May or June, with TJ Murphy that's, gonna, that's uh, titled Unbreakable Runner. And uh, we, we more or less outline from basic to elite level what we would typically see within kind of like an 8 to 12 week cycle of programming from 5k to ultra marathon oh, and great. yeah and um, he he that's just one chapter of it but TJ does a phenomenal job at uh, kind of showing the science behind everything 
um, and interviewing a ton of people that are that are part of long slow distance community, but that we've largely kind of seen a misinterpretation of what's what what really training should be about. With that said, I um, I, I catapulted towards this this way of training that it is in essence isn't necessarily low volume like I was saying. It's actually more work. It's mm. it's kind of like learn learning to play a guitar or piano. Like you're gonna have to get instruction, you're gonna have to learn, and you're gonna have to practice, and then you're gonna have to play, and that's mm. the deal. And and, and that's kind of how we're looking. We we've looked at endurance since I more you know I, I I probably a couple years after I got involved in endurance, I actually started shifting this way. Took several years to kind of come up with what we have, but uh, you know it constantly evolves and play and we do with it. So there's there's mm. the long long version of me, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I found interesting while reading your book is that uh, Romanoff had you doing something like 10K time trials as you were training for a 100-mile endurance event. Um, what was that like going through your mind as he's having you run these, you know, 10K, 10-mile time trials, and you've got to run 100 miles? Well, you know, first you need to kind of know who Romanoff is. And, you know, Nicholas is a very uh, – he's a very kind, gentle human being, but um, – he, he, that's not so the case with, with how he coaches people. Um, although he's very kind and gentle with how he provides you with things, it's when you start to question things that it's very, it's very blunt. It's very to the point. Um, and uh, you know, I, I questioned everything in the beginning and mm -hmm. learned within the first three weeks of of questioning that there would be no more questioning. And, uh, you know, I, I was doing 10K time trials. I did a half marathon time. I think I did a 10-mile, which was my – the 10-mile time trial, I think, was the um, kind of the, the epicenter for my mind changing and going, wow, something really happened here. Um, and, and that's when I stopped questioning him on, on a lot of things. And, and it was only because I basically PR'd a 10-mile time trial. I, I, I PR'd it by, t by six minutes. You know, the fastest 10-miler that I had ever run by over six minutes, and I'd only been three weeks into a, hit his oversight. Mm, wow. And, and for people who don't know as much of your backstory, you had actually been doing the traditional sort of Lydiard approach, I would call it maybe, where you're doing 80 to 100 miles a week. You had done Ironmans, and, and now you're, you're trying a different approach. What made you kind of want to stick with it? Because, well, you said that 10-mile, but... You were only three weeks into the program. What gave you that confidence that, okay, this, this might actually work? Uh, the fact that I would, could run 10 miles fa six minutes faster than I'd ever run 10 miles mm -hmm. was, was enough for me at, the point, at that time. Um, I, it doesn't mean I still didn't, you know, I wasn't skeptical or I didn't understand because, you know, if you think about it, like if you just sit and look back on, on training and everything and, and, and we're, we kind of – we hear how something's done from an elite level, or we hear how somebody got something done and, and trained. And you know, I, I'm watching this right now with uh, a kid by the name of Rich Froning, um, who has won the CrossFit Games three times in a row, and you know, potentially could win it for a fourth time. Um, you know, and and people think because Rich can do so many workouts that that is what is separating him from everybody else and that is not what separates him from everybody else not 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 by a long shot because anybody can actually go do four or five workouts a day and this goes back to endurance and even the Lydiard approach where we've found that it's actually been a gross misinterpretation of what Lydiard did and and actually what a lot of coaches do today 
is where it's more or less just tossing a dozen eggs at the wall and finding out who actually has the better technique of it <laughs> because <laughs> it's the one who has the better technique that doesn't break, right? right? And and that's exactly how people make it through something. And Lydiard actually was fairly intense with what he did with a lot of his athletes and, and it was a brutal thing and it progressed year after year after year. And that's essentially what's happened with Rich Froning is here's a kid who actually you know, it was said this weekend by a friend of mine, Derek Robinson, where he's like, you know, look, you've got a guy at the last event in the CrossFit Games who's stabilizing a bar over his head with his shoulders versus Rich Froning, who's in the last event and he's stabilizing a bar over his head off of his skeletal structure because he's so open and in such a good position that that the kid doesn't have to, meta he, there's less of a metabolic cost. So he's much more efficient. And that's more or less kind of what we're trying to get the general public and, and everybody who's out there just running and kind of breaking every year to understand that, hey, there's a better, easier solution to getting to where it is you possibly want to go or even seeing a much larger picture as to where you want to go. Like there's actually more, There's you, you have far more potential than you actually think, but because you've just been lacing up your shoes and heading out the door, which is just fine to a large degree, Mm -hmm. But if you don't ever treat it as though it's a skill, then you actually are going to pick up problems along the way because you are, aren't actually dealing with joints in their full range of motion. You're dealing with things in a shortened range of motion for longer periods of time and then not understanding that you, know, you, you might need to start moving in a more functional manner than just running. Um, you know, so I guess you know that's more or less what what we've seen and why we've come to the conclusions we have. Um, sure, there's a lot more to it, but mm -hmm. um, that that's kind of the overall picture as to where it's like we're taking a runner and going, hey, <laughs> you, you you can actually look like a real you know violinist or real guitarist here. You can actually play beautiful music. We just need to take you there. We mm -hmm. just need we we just need to show you the proper keys. And, mm -hmm. uh, and and that requires some skill training. That requires intensity, and then it re you know, and on top of that, it requires volume. You know, you there's a lot to that last uh, answer that you just uh, mentioned. And one thing that you said was that we're not all elite athletes like Rich Browning, and we can't all work out four to five times a day. And a, a big part of your program, I think, is uh, maximizing recovery and really figuring out what works for you as far as getting in those individual sessions to really hit it hard, but then allowing your body to recover. Um, yes. Do you see people overtraining too much with the high mileage approach? Yeah, I think it's more 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 along the lines of under-recovering, but yeah, mm, okay. <laughs> the overtraining principle. I've always kind of looked at it as like, you know, hey, you can go out and do as much as you want. And I, I mean, Erin's actually in the other room right now rowing, and then she's going to do a, uh, a CrossFit piece after and, and, and a few more sessions, and the fact is, is she can handle that type of stuff, and she's built to that capacity where, you know, um, I may not be right now. Mm -hmm. um, I, it would take me some more time to climb up to that to that potential, and, and, you know, it's not that I can't go out and do three workouts in a day. It's just going to come at a cost, and do I get myself back to normal? as quickly as she does. No, not right now. And me being almost 10 years older than she is, you know, I'm almost 40 at this point. So it's like, hey, how much time do I need? What do I need to do in order to get myself back so I can start training again in order to get back to, you know, in order to do a race that I want to do at 100%. And that's always the goal. And it's like, I, I don't, 
ever, you know, I know I realize there's stuff out there on the internet where it was like, you know, hey, you know, he just doesn't, there's nothing, no, you're not supposed to run over 13.1 miles or, you know, you're never supposed to do more than a half marathon, blah, 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 blah. That's not true. Um, you know, there's plenty of athletes out there who can handle running 20 miles on a Saturday and get back up and do something else on a Sunday. It's just the 90, you know, that's the 1% crew. Mm -hmm. The rest of us are not going to be doing that. And, um, if you've ever done an ultra marathon, you understand what I'm saying, you know, because the next day it's, you know, there's very few people who can get up and move around just fine. You know, I actually have a guy coming in right now, Mark Matisiak, who's a, uh, I mean, a guy's multiple time bad water, multiple time. Uh, he's, he's a phenomenal endurance guy, but he understands that there's also another, there's also a solution to him getting, there's a better solution for him getting back to normal much quicker. And he knows that when he's stronger, when he's fitter, that that, that happens because of the other auxiliary stuff he's doing. Okay. You know, you, you also mentioned that Lydiard might have been a little bit misunderstood, and I, I remember reading his book, Run to the Top, and he had, uh, I think it was Peter Snell, who was an 800-meter runner, doing sprints in the sand and hill sprints, and although he was actually doing some 20-milers as well in the off-season, he also focused on things you talk about, like strength, speed, and technique. So how how important do you think it is to get those strength and speed versus that that twenty miler say? No, oh, I, I I think it's absolutely it's more important than the actual longer distance running. But um, uh, you you know if you send somebody out to run twenty miles or let's just say ten kilometers, take it down a notch. Mm. If I send somebody out to run ten kilometers and their form starts to deteriorate at five kilometers or even you know, two miles. The the importance that lies in that understanding of a coach is, I think, is the most important part of a coach's uh, career or or how they coach. Because if you don't understand that an athlete actually starts to break down, and now they're going to go out and reinforce a lot of poor movement patterns in order to just get something done to get some aerobic low volume, low intensity aerobic training done, you've just made a grave mistake. You've just set that athlete up for more or less thousands upon thousands of um, poor movement patterns that are, are now set in place for that as a default for that athlete to move into. Whereas if we can get that athlete moving a little bit better and focus on technique or, or have them doing enough aerobic activity to where, hey, maybe they just go out for two miles before they break down, Rest five minutes, two miles again. Rest five minutes, two miles again. There's no reason why somebody can't do that. And you get, you take somebody like a, um, uh, like a Hal Higdon or, or, or even like a, um, who, who's the guy who does the run, walk, run, walk, run, walk? Uh, Galloway. Yeah, Galloway. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And any ultra marathoner knows that, they're, you know, 99.999999% of every single ultra marathoner out there, who has, it, it's a run, walk deal, man. It's not like you're 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 running the entire time. Now, a lot of people can do it, pull it off, but most people don't. And that's get understanding when you start to fatigue and break down that you're only reinforcing some sort of poor movement pattern and then recovering and getting back to it and then going back to a better movement pattern is what it's all about. Mm. You know, you talked about uh, there's 99% of us and then there's the 1% who are, you know, the elite. And you actually live with one of those elite athletes, Aaron Kafaro, who's got two gold medals. What is yep. that like living with her and watching her work out? I mean, what, what what's different about her training compared to something that we would do? 
Um, Erin just she she recovers quicker than anybody, you know. Um, and she she just she um she has kind of she's just one of those special cases where it's like she you know <laughs> she has that gift of suffering, mm -hmm. um, and she enjoys it to a large degree, um, you know, and it it. Uh, it it starts to bug you sometimes because you go to train, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys can train. You know, I remember, you know, like for instance, like she could, she could barely do handstand push-ups after the Olympics just because she was so cooked from the training and everything. Mm -hmm. And I would say within two, three months, she was just banging handstand push-ups out left and right. And then within like a six-month period, she's just blowing by me with handstand push-ups. That that's kind of annoying, you know, <laughs> like. And it's not that you know you need to go out and we're testing handstand push-ups here, but the point is is that here's a girl who just adapts and recovers and can get back to things quicker than you can, and you start to understand why it is she is why why she has the things that she does is because you know she has the ability to recover. She looks at things. She knows. She looks at things differently. She looks at her body differently. She doesn't you know her. It's a temple. It's a. It's not that I don't look at things like that, but she's constantly thinking about recovery because that's what's been basically embedded in her from all her training in the last decade. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian, you have a background in swimming. You were a, a sprint swimmer, I believe, and uh, looking at other people's or other sports, it's, it's interesting to see their training and how it compares with running, and a lot of swimmers seem to spend hours and hours and hours in the pool. Have you been able to make a dent at all with the swimming community? Yeah, well, um, well, yeah, we've made a fairly large dent, at least at the collegiate level. Um, we're seeing we've seen quite a few programs start to pick up some of this. Uh, I I don't know if lower volumes more more into it, but uh, the more a lot more strength and conditioning and skill work that definitely is being uh, brought up. Um, but you know, swimming, even though there are programs that just swim and swim and swim and swim, nobody ever really just goes out and swims like. A thousand meters or a thousand yards. It's always broken up into intervals, hmm. you know, um, because there's really no event other than long distance swimming or open water swimming, for that matter, that uh, really has anything really long. So everybody just does interval training. Um, the San Jose State women's swim team has, in the last, I believe they switched the program uh, about four years ago. When Sage Hopkins came in, and then uh, two years ago, they won a Western Athletic. They've won the Western Athletic title twice in the last two years. From him, just uh, from Sage actually attacking this whole thing from the standpoint of it's not just about volume; it's actually about intensity. It's about technique. It's about working on form. It's about being strong and not breaking down. And you know, it, it's it's actually pretty funny to watch his girls come onto a pool deck because they don't look like swimmers; they look like CrossFitters, mm. and and they've won championships that way versus just swimming, 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 swimming. And there's a lot of bite back, and you you hear a lot of the um, you know, coaches who kind of talk smack and do their thing and, you know, that like what Sage is doing isn't right or whatever. And, you know, it's the same stuff I've, ever, I've always heard, you know, but yet the guy's gone and won two titles. And uh, that, that's something to say. So. Okay. So your, your program is, is there is a, a component of it that seems initially to take a more minimal approach to training, but you also add strength training. And that's something that a lot of runners can be scared of. Uh, give me some reasons not to be afraid of strength training. Well, every, 
largely running comes down to, it doesn't come down to your aerobic training, although aerobic training is a very, very large part of it. Running, running any event largely comes down to tissue breakdown or the eccentric loading of what happens when you run. Brian, your, your, your uh, voice just got a lot softer. Did your microphone change or something? Uh, How's that? Yeah, that's great. Okay, sorry. So the, um, what was the question? Again? I, I was wondering, well, give me some reasons that we as runners shouldn't be afraid of strength training. A lot of people think, well, they're just going to put on muscle. Uh, you know, what does is, what is doing a squat have to do with running a marathon? But you, you've, you've used strength training yourself and with your athletes to really help push through those ultra-distance events. So what are some reasons that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of strength training? Largely what happens is running, you break down because of eccentric loading. So what we, so it's not a, an aerobic issue. And anybody who's run an ultra marathon or run a marathon or run, you know, maybe a 10K and, you know, maybe the, maybe 10K is not a great example, but it, it's still, you know, it still is an example of the fact that you're not out of breath when you finish these events. These are not largely, so, so aerobic training wise, you're not, that's not what the problem is. The problem mm. is the eccentric loading, and that eccentric loading is largely a strength and conditioning issue. And 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 I you know I understand runners not wanting to put on weight and things like that. But the fact is, is if you put on weight and you're put on five to ten pounds, yet you're still you get faster. Then you know I, I don't see any issues with that. Um, um, and and largely, if you're still running enough, you're not going to put on any weight anyway. It's going to be a really hard thing to do. Um, at least I found that. I only put on about five pounds from when I went from a high, from a really high volume aerobic intensive um, training down to more intensity with um, a lot of strength and conditioning. Um, with that said, I got a, a lot faster, and and that's exactly what we see out of a lot of people. It's just it's it's conditioning the tissue to 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 have the ability to absorb all that eccentric loading, and all that eccentric loading, that tissue breakdown, is a strength and conditioning issue. So this is why we see these things. We also start to see the more you know, I think, which is actually more important, is the movement patterns, which is why we love CrossFit so much, is the fact that it can expose an athlete's weakness or any functional problems that we that somebody might have, and that if we exploit those weaknesses, that in in time we start to see everything else start to catch up and the strengths even become stronger. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that's a big, big bonus because a lot of people don't think they're, they, as a runner that uh, <laughs> going overhead has anything to do with running, but the fact is is your shoulders and your shoulder mobility has a ton to do with how you run. And, and there's an absolute connection between your shoulders and your hips and your feet and your knees and whatever. It's one system. It's not a bunch of different systems. Mm -hmm. So if one thing's screwed up, it's all going to come down the chain. Gotcha. Brian, let's talk a little bit about nutrition. Uh, I, I, I told you about uh, that I read a chapter in a new book I, called Diet Cults, and, and it's written by Matt Fitzgerald, and he's basically got you pictured as this, this cult leader of the paleo diet. What do you, what's, what's the deal with that? I mean, are you, are you a, are, do you think the paleo diet is a cult? Uh, not, no, not at all. I, I, I don't know. The paleo diet is not a cult. The paleo diet is a lot of people, you know, more or less, now, that doesn't mean that there's cult-like people <laughs> that are within the paleo movement, but I will tell you right now that most of the people who I am friends with, 
who are our actual leaders within the paleo community. I, I don't necessarily look at myself as somebody who's kind of one of those cult leaders in the paleo community at all. Um, although that is the way I, I you know, my, my, my lifestyle is focused more or less around the paleo diet um, because it's a principle-based diet. Uh, Lifestyle. It's not necessarily a diet, which it, it's been kind of deemed as. But you know, um, people tend to think things are uh, cult-like, and w when they come to new and have a lot of traction, and then when people get involved who are crazy about the results and everything that happens, and you know, I've, I, I think the paleo diet largely, and it's starting to have, it's starting to get much more, much, much more momentum going on um, is is more or less one of the one of the better ways to figure out if you've got any inflammation issues going on in your body or any which which basically leads to gut gut problems um, and most people don't know I didn't know I had no idea until I switched over went went about um, 90 days on paleo and then reintroduced some grain and found out really quick how gluten intolerant I actually was mm. And 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 how much inflammation I was I was basically dealing with when I was a high carb athlete. So um, I'm I'm just not that. It's not that I'm 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 carb I'm anti carb because I'm not because there was a point in my career where we were very anti carb and thought we could get away with it. But we've since figured out that uh, you know adding carbs back into people to athletes' diets who are actually taxing the glycolytic system. Not just athletes, you know. If you're if you're if you're more or less just an aerobic athlete, I I think low carb is the absolute way to go and only way to go. If you want an efficient fueling system, if you don't, then you should eat high carb. And um, you know, but if you are somebody who's taxing your glycolytic system quite a bit, you're going to need some carb introduction back into your deal. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. And another thing that I, reason I don't think the paleo is really a cult is there's people who are doing this 80/20 thing where 80% where of the time they'll eat paleo and then every once in a while they'll splurge and have a donut or something. So yeah, I, I don't see it. Yeah, I don't but, see it either. You know, let's talk about uh, three fuel. Um, yeah. Zach Bitter, he he actually follows a kind of a paleo style diet, and he recently set a hundred mile American record, and uh, I sent him some three fuel. He said it's amazing. Tell me a little bit about how you got started with this. We were we were trialing another company's product. Um, this is when we were kind of in that no carb phase, um, and I tried to believe tooth and nail that we could go no carb, um, and we found that with just medium chain fats and and protein that you 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 lasted about two hours. Even if you were fueling it continually, um, your body's just burning through too much glycogen, um, and, and you can't you can't get through gluconeogenesis quick enough um, after a certain point. Um, so we ended up splitting ways because uh, the company wanted to put out a product that was basically protein and fat, which is just fine, and you know it's a great product for that for using protein and fat. But um, my uh, one of my business my business partner. Uh, asked me if I wanted to try if I would be willing to try a certain carbohydrate, and uh, he kind of said, "Hey, let's just um, I need to have an open mind here." And so I was like, "All right, send it. Let's play with it." And uh, so he sent it, and it's called it's called a hy uh, hydroxypropyl dye starch uh, waxy maze, 
Um, it's been treated with hydrochloric acid. Don't let that scare you. It's just change. They just use it to change the molecular structure of the waxy maze. So it's not as. So it's not. It doesn't act like a starch anymore. It now acts like a fiber, and that fiber, that that carbohydrate, literally outperforms any carbohydrate at three hours. Um, takes takes two to three hours for it to kick in to get get a, to get a glucose strip going. Um, and so once we figured that out, we figured out that there was this carb which actually bodybuilders have been using for years. So professional bodybuilders would take this stuff like right before they go to bed so that they could kick a glucose strip and wouldn't have to wake up in the middle of the night because mm -hmm. they were getting catabolic. So it was this little secret that they all had. And so we started playing with it and started tossing it around to people. And then we started mixing it with some medium chain fats and some proteins. And then we figured out that you know we wanted a protein that was actually much more soluble that you could basically digest as fast as you could but we needed grass, we wanted grass-fed because we believed in the whole grass-fed concept, um, you know, and so we had to actually find somebody who produced a, a hydrosylate grass-fed whey protein, and uh, we did, we finally found somebody, and it's expensive as hell, but we, uh, we, we meshed it together and found the right combinations after a few trials, and found that 20 grams of protein, 20 grams of carbs, and 5 grams of uh, medium-chain fats was basically the staple point of where you could literally just have infinite fuel sources um, as, as you went on, um, as you trained or as you competed. Um, with that said, we, we also added uh, betine to it because there was just a, a, a ton of betine loss through sweat it actually showed a lot of positive results with uh, production of power output by taking B-time back in. So it helps, not only helps with the recovery process with the protein and the B-time, but you've got, you know, enough carb kick in and by the time the medium chain fats run out, because medium chain fat is actually an immediately usable fuel source, that carbohydrate starts to kick in. And then you can continue to refuel and your body as it's breaking down, especially if you're an ultra marathoner, it, you're, 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 you're starting to help rebuild a lot of that stuff that's already starting to break down. So when you get into those six, eight-hour marks where tissue, where you, it's it's a must, it's an imperative that you have amino acids coming out of your system. You don't have to actually synthesize those amino acids out of things. You can actually have those amino acids readily available. Mm, gotcha. And you, you know, one of the great things I've noticed about it is that it's really easy to absorb in your stomach. I mean, a lot of times if you're running a marathon or ultra, you'll be you may. Uh, take some goo packets or something and just really upsets your stomach taking those all day. But this stuff, it, it almost tastes like you're, you're actually eating something that's going to nourish you and get you through the next couple hours. Yep. Um, and actually, you, you've, uh, you tested it with Erin Kafaro, who's a Olympic two-time Olympic gold, so that was pretty interesting to hear her story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we had already tested it on ourselves and we're pretty confident in it, but we couldn't we couldn't just like take somebody who's training for the Olympics and say, hey, test this out for us, see how it works. So we, we, we had had some, you know, <clears throat> success with it, but then had Erin use it in her Olympic cycle. And, you know, I know I realize that people are like, well, she's not really an endurance athlete, but actually, yeah, they are. Um, they actually do more volume than most ultra marathoners or even marathoners training for the Olympics do, um, where they're doing 200 kilometers plus of rowing a week 
um, you know that that's a whole lot of volume, and um, you know Aaron could go get in a boat for two to three hours and not bonk out while everyone over teammates was sucking down goose or eating cliff shots and chugging down as much food as they could in a boat, and she was just sitting there pretty, just doing fine. <laughs> and um, you know she had argue she she there's no argument. It's just she had actually a night and day race between 2008 and 2012. And I mean, it wasn't just three fuel, but three fuel was part of it. We changed her nutrition. She basically went more paleo. We dropped some carbohydrate intake, up some fat intake. Um, we really got on her nutrition and then, uh, you know, applied specific exercises that we knew would help combat any of the breakdown that has uh, plagued most of these rowers. Mm. You know, it sounds like you were pretty uh, integral and in kind of, you know, helping her out a little bit, giving her a little bit of advice. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is periodization. How mm -hmm. important is that? And uh, does CrossFit endurance use periodization? No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not a real fan of periodization. In fact, we've done an article before on it where we looked at like Olympic, cal you know, Olympic sprinters, you know, for the 100, and you take 80 guys who've trained for a 100-meter sprint, and more or less, and, and over a four-year cycle, and uh, in four years, basically, you've got a, uh, I believe it's a 40%, um, it might even be 30%, if I think, uh, I, I need to look it up, but it's on the CrossFit Journal, um, 40 or 30% was the uh, hit rate on a periodized program, basically guys who'd been following a periodized program through a coach, 40 to, so 30 to 40 percent of them had a uh, either season best P, uh, or or world record, you know, basically a PR of some sort. And the last time I looked, that uh, 40 percent was not a very successful way of doing things. And um, more or less, what I even saw with with a lot of my training was, especially when we were following a periodized chart, was that things had to change all the time because I was either getting banged up. Um, dealing with some sort of injury or an athlete's injury and then having to step, take a step back, do some strength and conditioning or take some time off. And that right there in itself ends the periodized program. So mm -hmm. um, the Russians have long been, uh, you know, not periodizing things for many, 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 many years. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's just something that I've kind of been schooled on. Yeah. So it sounds like it's, you can kind of use this as a year-round approach to stay in, you know, pretty fit year-round. You don't have to have a, a real long down cycle, which is something that I never really liked is you'd, you'd have to have like a three- to six-month period where you just did base building, but this sounds like you can uh, stay pretty fit year-round. Is that true? Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not that you shouldn't change some things from here and there, but, uh, you know, that whole cyclical thing is um, it, it, it's important is everything has seasons and everything should cycle but it's not like it, you, you can more or less stay fit and stay in shape and be with you know within you know three to four weeks of hitting some PRs if you need to by ramping things up or cranking up the intensity etc um, mm. and, and we've seen that within the powerlifting world for eons where guys are just three weeks out you know at any given point guys three to four weeks out can ramp up their training and bam, they're going and crushing, you know, season records. Gotcha. So Brian, you mentioned you've got a new book coming out. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that and, and if you have anything else new coming out. Um, yeah, we, uh, the new book's called Unbreakable Runner. It's with TJ Murphy, who, um, if you didn't know, was the, um, he, he uh, was the senior editor at uh, Competitor Group. And uh, he basically <laughs> did an article on us and 
inevitably the deal was is if he was going to do an article on us, like he had to come do a seminar and follow what it was we did for at least a few months in order to see what it was, what 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 we were doing, versus the large majority of people who absolutely have no they have no idea what we're doing, but they literally will sit there and badmouth it to every degree, and they've never even tried it. Um, so, in that whole thing, we basically TJ and I had become have become great friends, and uh, he approached me a little while ago about doing a book and and more or less getting into the nuts and bolts of why and how we came to the conclusions we did. So it's uh, and, and TJ's done a ton of research on this thing. Um, gone down the rabbit's hole and, and brought up names and people and things that have that people have long forgotten about and just have did, have just kind of pushed aside and more or less it's a uh, sacred cow slang I guess <laughs> of of long slow distance not that long slow distance is not one way to get to the top of the mountain because we we you know I, I I'm I'm just fine with you know not have thinking that I don't have the only way to train. Um, I, I'm definitely fine with people going out and wanting to run long, slow distance, and this isn't a competition as to who has the better or best program. But it definitely is a program that has helped a lot of people and gotten a lot of people to the top of the mountain, of their of their own mountain. And um, you know, so TJ basically has done the a, a phenomenal job at uh, getting into all that stuff. We get into nutrition uh, a ton. And uh, unlike the other book, and then we, uh, you know, lay out some programming in that book from uh, five kilometers up to ultra marathoning. Um, from from more from a uh, basic standpoint to an elite standpoint. So you got basic, intermediate, and elite. Great. Yeah, I can't wait to see that book. So Brian, you're you're pretty active on Twitter, uh, Facebook. Where is the best place for people to go to find out more? Um, you can hit either CrossFit Endurance. Athlete Cell is our coaching platform, so athletecell.com. 3Fuel, um, 3FU, 3L.com is the uh, supplement website. Um, and you have a code that people yep. can use for a 10% uh, discount on that. Um, you can give that one out. And then um, we, uh, I am on Twitter, which is I am unscared. And uh, Facebook page, I'm, I'm rarely on Facebook. It's just kind of a drop a post so it goes to Twitter place mm. so the easiest way to actually contact me or get or have interaction with me would be Twitter because I do actually respond to everybody unless you're some sort of troll uh, <laughs> other than that I, I make I make it a point to respond to everybody awesome well Brian thanks so much for sharing with us uh, your approach to distance training and thanks for being part of the show thanks for having me on Aaron